My name is Rabbi Yehuda Sarna, and I proudly serve as the executive director of the Bronfen Center for Jewish Student Life here at NYU, as well as the university chaplain uh, here at New York University. Uh, on behalf of the NYU Alumni Association and the Bronfen Center, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to this very special program, and for those of you here for the first time, to NYU. Good evening, I'm Dorothy Tannenbaum. Tonight, the NYU Alumni Association speakers on the Square program is delighted to partner with the Bronfman Center to feature Rabbi Lord, Jonathan Sachs, and David Brooks. We celebrate over eight years of extraordinary lectures, all made possible through the generosity of dedicated alumni and friends. It is my pleasure to welcome an esteemed NYU alumni this evening, Dr. Richard Bourne. Richard is an alumnus at NYU's Washington Square College and School of Medicine. Richard's knowledge of the downtown area extends far beyond his time at NYU. Together with his partner, Ira Drucker, Richard develops hotels in Manhattan, among them the Mercer, Jane, Greenwich, and Malton Hotels. Just wanted to give a special congratulations, Mazel Tov, to Richard and Debbie. Uh, just Saturday night, they became grandparents once again. And so we thank them. Uh, uh, we thank them for being here tonight uh, to celebrate with us. Richard. Thank you, Rabbi Sarna. It is an honor to be here this evening. NYU is my alma mater for both my undergraduate and graduate education. Both my daughter Jennifer and my son Max attended NYU, making NYU a family affair. We continue to marvel at the forward-thinking and seemingly endless opportunity that NYU provides its students, faculty, alumni, and friends. I am proud to serve on the advisory board of the Bronfman Center, a home for Jewish students and a Jewish center for the whole university. It is an honor to welcome back to NYU Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the Ingeborg and Ira Rennert Global Distinguished Professor of Judaic Thought, and to greet distinguished New York Times columnist David Brooks, who has received an honorary doctorate from NYU. In fact, his father taught English literature here. Rabbi Sachs served as chief rabbi of the, Union of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth between September 1991 and September 2003 a visiting professor at several universities in Britain, the United States, and Israel, Rabbi Sachs holds 16 honorary degrees, including a doctorate of divinity confirmed to mark his first 10 years in office as chief rabbi by the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey. David Brooks became an op-ed columnist for the New York Times in September of 2003. His column appears every Tuesday and Friday, so look out for it tomorrow. He is currently a commentator on PBS NewsHour, on NPR's All Things Considered, and NBC's Meet the Press. Mr. Brooks also teaches at Yale University and is a member of the American Academy of the Arts and Science. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Sachs and David Brooks. Lord Rabbi. Uh, I haven't been here since I was five years old. Uh, my father didn't get tenure, so we're still bitter. Uh, that's not true. I'm just, just kidding around. Um, uh, so uh, the obvious first question is your Lord Rabbi Sachs, which is higher, Lord or Rabbi? First of all, obviously, uh, David, I just want to say thank you for agreeing to do this, because I can't tell you what this does for my street cred with my children. <laughs> I'm the guy who got to sit next to David Brooks. So thank you, David. Thank you for all you've done to lift the conscience and the eyes of, you've been terrific. And of course, mazel tov also to Richard and Debbie on their new granddaughter, um, Ayelet, and I hereby agree to uh, arrange a match with one of my grandchildren <laughs> immediately should terms be agreed to. And may we all see nachas from our grandchildren. Now, you were asking. Um, I didn't know we'd get so Jewish so fast. <laughs> so I'll tell you, the good news about being a rabbi, you know, is that uh, you're a servant of the Lord. 
But the trouble with the House of Lords, and people ask me what it's like, what's the difference between going to a synagogue and going to the House of Lords? And I say, if given the choice, always go to the House of the Lord instead of the House of Lords. Because in the House of the Lord, only the rabbi gives a sermon. In the House of Lords, everyone does. <laughs> and what's worse, nobody listens to them either. So, well, that's probably the same in a synagogue likewise. But <laughs> now, I mean, the, this concept of rabbi and the concept of Lord, tell us really what's at stake here. Rabbi means my teacher. We are not a religion that gets impressed by titles, by hierarchy. We believe that every Jewish man, woman, every Jewish child is an aristocrat. We're part of a royal family that's been around for a very long time. So we don't take this lords and ladies thing terribly seriously. And uh, so for me, being in the House of Lords is just a chance to make sure there's a Jewish voice in the national conversation. And I, I think that's not unimportant. And I once met a guy who, who said I, I was having, in Britain, I was having a nightmare. He was a lord, and he said I was having a nightmare. I was giving this incredibly boring speech in the House of Lords, and then I woke up, and I found out I was giving an incredibly boring <laughs> speech. I know uh, the feeling well. <laughs> now, let's go to this uh, teacher thing, the, the public intellectual. You're a Jewish public intellectual. Uh, back in the 1950s, we had Abraham Joshua Heschel, Martin Buber, uh, Joseph Soloveitchik, we also had Christian public intellectuals, Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, they don't seem to exist uh, anymore with the possible exception of you and maybe one or two others. Do you agree with that and, and what happened? <clears throat> I don't know, I didn't, I didn't use the phrase, but it's a phrase that's better known in America than it is in Britain. I just felt that as a rabbi, as a teacher, um, I wanted the Jewish voice to be heard in the national arena. So, because, you know, I ran around, I, I was ra chief rabbi of many, many congregations for the first few years. I ran around all of them, around Britain, around the Commonwealth. And by about three or four years, I, I think I met everyone who comes to shul. And I sat down with Elaine, my wife, and I said, how do I reach the people who never come to shul? And that's when I realized that, you know, we we do have this thing called the, the public square, which in Britain means things like the BBC, like the Times of London. And so I began to do a fair amount of broadcasting and about writing. And to my amazement, I mean real amazement, I remember back in 1993, this is quite a while back, we, we had a, a very serious crime in Britain, uh, two 10-year-old kids murdered a four-year-old child. I wrote an op-ed in the Times. The next day, I got a call from 10 Downing Street from the Prime Minister. Could I, he'd read the article. Could I come around and discuss it with him? I remember the first time I sat face-to-face -face with the Prime Minister. John Major turned to me and said, Jonathan, what do I do about crime? <laughs> I said, be against it, Prime Minister. <laughs> And from then on, we ki I kind of found myself in, in the public square. But I, it wasn't a conscious decision. I just felt I want to reach Jews that I can't reach any other way. And in the course of doing that, I discovered that I was touching and, and a religious message. And I think Reinhold Niebuhr found this, that he reached way beyond the Christian community. I think A.J. Heschel found he reached way beyond the Jewish community. When we enter the public square, um, and, 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 and develop a, a reason, uh, you know, use John Rawls' language of public reason so that people understand what you're saying without knowing the proof texts, then you do add to the texture and richness of public debate. And, you know, we call stuff the news. I specialize in the olds, you know, because, you know, you do need a sense of perspective as... Richard Weaver once said, the trouble with humanity is it forgets to read the minutes of the last meeting. <laughs> and if we forget the past, we can repeat its mistakes. Yeah. I recently saw a graph of the experts who were cited actually in my newspaper and by profession. And the economists over the decades had gone from here up to here. And everyone else had gone down to here. And the only trouble being, as they say, if you were to lay all the economists in the world end to end, they still wouldn't reach 
a conclusion. <laughs> so there is an economics department here at NYU, though. Uh, I, I, sorry, I speak as a yeah. lapsed economist. <laughs> so the, um, but so they have become economics has become the gateway between public knowledge and policy, and it seems to me what's cast out of that conversation is the language of morality. And this hit home to me once I was on, we have a show here called Charlie Rose, which is broadcast uh, on PBS for 14 people on the Upper West Side. Uh, and, uh, joke, joke. Uh, <laughs> you have to explain that one to me. I should not say these things that just come to me. But, uh, uh, and, uh, and I once was talking about a, a book I'm working on and I was t using the word sin. And I got a call the next day from a prominent publisher, not mine, uh, and he said, you know, I love your description of your book. I wouldn't use the word sin. It's so off-putting. Uh, use the word insensitive. Uh, and, but, but I think that's a, a sign that, especially for religious figure, if you're talking about morality in the public sphere, there are certain words that are uncomfortable or unknown, and certain concepts, namely God. And do you find you have to, you talk about morality, you talk about public affairs, but you don't talk as much about God uh, or use some of that language? No, I, you know, I want to bring together here two, uh, 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 two very remarkable insights. Number one, a Talmudic insight. The Talmud says, when you get to heaven, the first question we will be asked is, did you behave honestly in business? The second question is, did you learn Torah? That will show you a sense of rabbinic priorities. There are no value-free zones, including the market economy. The second thing is, um, a remarkable thing, and I'm sure you know this, that one, of the, one of the great minds of the 20th, 20th century, John von Neumann, who was the son of a banker and who, in his spare time, while he wasn't, you know, doing nuclear physics, invented something called games theory. Games theory has a famous thing called the prisoner's dilemma, which tells you you can construct situations in which two people, each acting in their own best interests, achieve an outcome that is bad for both of them. Now, the prisoner's dilemma was regarded as a mathematical curiosity, but it was nothing of the kind because it refuted the principle on which the whole of market economics is based, Adam Smith's principle that it's not the altruism of the butler and baker, but the pursuit of their own interests. In other words, he said, if everyone pursues their own interests, then the economy, and he used an almost religious phrase, by the invisible hand, will produce general good. What the prisoner's dilemma showed is it isn't true. And the prisoner's dilemma was solved by something called the iterated prisoner's dilemma. In other words, if two people get to know one another, then they realize that each pursuing their own interests is bad for both of them, and they learn to trust one another. What this showed mathematically is that you cannot run a market economy without trust. And the banking system collapsed in 2008 because bankers lost the trust of the public and they lost trust in one another. So there's a very moral thing and yet a whole Western economy fell to pieces because of it. A free market depends on virtues that are not created by the market. Take sin and virtue out of economics and the economic system will collapse. What's the Jewish definition of sin? Uh, Jewish, one? <laughs> the Jewish definition of sin is what you did and I apologize for on, the, on Yom Kippur. <laughs> There's really no subject on which he doesn't have a quip. Uh, it's, impress it's impressive. Um, no, I, I agree. A friend of mine, uh, you know, must know, David uh, Wolpe, Rabbi Wolpe from Los Angeles, sure. said, you know, the economists think we shoot for happiness, but we don't shoot for happiness, we shoot for holiness. And if we shoot it for happiness, we'd never embrace anything that involves struggle. Uh, and we have a spiritual urge that makes us want to uh, accept some loss of happiness for, um, for struggle. Yeah. Look, Judaism has, you know, the, the Emory University down in Atlanta invited me four years ago to do a seminar on happiness with the Dalai Lama. 
And I thought to myself, well, I, first of all, the Dalai Lama is somebody I love anyway, but I thought to myself, happiness, you know. I'm a rabbi, I'm Jewish, you know. And they haven't asked me to speak about misery, existential angst, <laughs> outmarriage, identity crisis. Happiness, what a non-Jewish thing to talk about. It's Givaldi, it's beautiful. But I, I pointed out that, yeah, we have a word for happiness. It's ashray. And ashray is the first word of the book of Psalms. It's the first, the first word of our most famous prayer. But if you look in the Chumash, you know, if you look in the Mosaic books, the Mosaic books are not about happiness. They're about simcha. Simcha is joy. And I don't believe you can there's an English word that you can translate simcha into. Because any word in English like joy, pleasure, delight, exaltation are all things you can experience alone. Simcha, you can't experience alone. If you look throughout the whole of Tanakh, you are always celebrating with someone. You get married, you you rejoice with your wife for a year. Uh, you have a festival, you should rejoice in your festivals, you, your servants, the stranger in the gate, you know. So I, I'm, I'm not even a fan of happiness. I'm a fan of joy. Because happiness, it can be selfish, it can be narcissistic, it can be self-indulgent. But there's Jewish focus on celebrating together and making sure that no one is left out. Now that, I think, is a value worth living for. I would like to pause over the sentence uh, uh, the, about the Dalai Lama, I love the guy. Uh, which, first two thoughts, um, who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> but second, that you got a chance to meet him, and I, I know him, I've only had a chance to meet him once, but he is someone who radiates a deep joy. Well, and you know, there's a song, when the rabbi laughed, laughed, when the rabbi laughs, all the chassidim laugh. Yeah. When we did this conversation together at Emory University, 7,000 people came. It was in the basketball stadium. Nobody could understand a word he was saying. But when he laughed, 7,000 yeah. people laughed. Yeah, that's true. This man has the most infectious laugh yeah. in the universe. And for cheering us all up, he deserved the Nobel Prize. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, I, the one time I met him, he laughed at the most unexpected moments. And it made me feel so relaxed. And he had a little Dalai Lama bag, a little canvas bag. Uh, and so I said, you got any candy in there? Uh, and so he pulled it out. And basically, everything you get in the first-class cabin of an airplane, he started pulling out the little visors, the ear things. But then he had a big Toblerone bar, so he had the candy. Um, let's go to a, a more serious uh, subject that is the subject of your next book, uh, which is um, the subject of religion and extremism. Uh, we've certainly seen it uh, in Islam. Is it a problem for Judaism? Is it a problem for Christianity? Is it a universal problem? And what is the manifestation of this problem? Where religion turns to extremes, when it feels that the distance between itself and the world has become unbridgeable. The normal state of religion is to exist in creative tension with the world. But when the world becomes so secular that if you're religious, you feel every value that you hold sacred is held lightly by the world, then you have to say, well, either I opt for the world or I opt for the word. And as a result, all religions have become more extreme in the past century. It was a series of pamphlets in the 1920s called The Fundamentals that led to the word fundamentalism. And that was, began, began with uh, Protestant Christians in America. The second religion to go extreme was Judaism after the Holocaust, when the world of the Haredim, of the very, very orthodox, did this extraordinary thing, because although all juries lost in Europe in the Holocaust, none was more hit than the ultra-orthodox in Eastern Europe that lost over 90% of their number. All that were left were Ud Mutzal Me'esh, a brand plucked from the burning. And with total dedication, and without weeping and building Holocaust mem memorials, they simply rebuilt their shattered worlds. They had the faith to marry and have children 
and build families and build communities and build schools and build yeshivot. So this community that was almost completely destroyed in the Holocaust has rebuilt itself in every country, in Israel, in America, everywhere. And it's extraordinary. So there's such a thing as going to the extreme in the sense of shunning or negating the world. And that is not problematic. It becomes problematic when extremism turns to violence. Extreme Christians like the Amish, like the Mennonites, ultra-Orthodox Jews, you know, the, who, who are happy sitting and learning and dovening, they are not a threat to the world. They, they are holy people and they are a spiritual elite and sometimes we agree with them and sometimes we don't. It's the combination, the incendiary combination of religious extremism and violence, which is not that common. And that is the scary thing in the world today. Now, that, it's an amazing sentence that all religions became extreme in the 20th century. That's counterintuitive. We used to have this thing called the secularism thesis, that religion was dying out, but obviously not so. It was more accurate to say maybe, and this is true here, polarizing. Um, well, you know, there's a principle in sociology called Hansen's Law that says the second generation strives to remember what the first generation strove to forget. You know, I mean, you know, our parents' generation wanted to be deeply integrated. All our Jewish schools in Britain, and we didn't have many of them. What did you learn in a Jewish school in Britain when my parents were growing up? How to be a proper English man or woman. How to hold your teacup the way Her Majesty does. That's what they learned. You know, uh, in the old days, you used to go to Oxford to forget Yiddish. Now you go to Oxford to learn Yiddish. <laughs> they have a chair in Yiddish in Oxford. They probably tell a very superior form of Yiddish Oxford joke, <laughs> I wouldn't know. Yeah. In, in I'll tell you a young Oxford Yiddish vote, you know, one Oxford Jewish academic about another. On the surface, he's profound, but deep down, He's superficial. <laughs> and now, in this country, when we want to assimilate, we try to be British. There, you may have heard the phrase, uh, uh, what is it, act Yiddish, think British? Or, no, act British, think Yiddish. And what they did a couple generations ago was they decided to take all the names that were extremely English and give them to Jewish boys so nobody would think they were Jewish. And they gave them names like Irving and Milton and Norman. And within a generation, they were Jewish names, but so it didn't work. Uh, but That's what, right. What? Was it Ben Gurion who said, who, or who was it who said, you know, today they call it Israel, but next year they'll call it Oiving. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, is it a, is it in the nature of religion, in the nature of human nature, in the nature of some virulent philosophy that has infected religion that we see, especially in Islam, religion we see extremism and violence. No, no, what, what we're seeing now is something highly specific, and that is religion as um, the cloak of sanctity, hiding the naked pursuit of power. Now, that's not religion. That is politics masquerading as religion, and those are two very different things. Now, I don't think Jews or Christians should feel in any sense superior here because where Islam is now, we have been and they have been. Don't forget that what is happening in Islam now is happening in Israel in the first century. You had these three major rebellions against Rome, all of which were devastating because they went hand in hand with internecine civil war within the Jewish people itself. Josephus, who is an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem, writes in his book, The Jewish Wars, that the Jews inside Jerusalem were more intent on killing one another than fighting the Romans outside. You know, so what is happening today in Syria and Iraq was, you know, Bizer Anpin in a small way happening in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The end result of that was a catastrophe from which it took us 2,000 years to recover. And Jews learned, do not confuse religion with the pursuit of power. The same thing happened in Christianity in the 16th and 17th century after the Reformation, when Protestants and Catholics were murdering each other across Europe. 
and uh, which only ended in 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia. And then you had these major thinkers, the greatest of them being uh, Hobbes, Spinoza, and Locke, who developed the basic principles of social contract, um, human rights, doctrine of toleration, which became, in the 18th century or more later, the separation of church and state in two versions, the American version and the French version. So Islam is going through what Judaism went through 2,000 years ago, what Christianity went through four centuries ago. The end result is always the same. People realize you must never pursue, uh, you must never confuse religion and power, or to put it bluntly, you cannot impose truth by force. Are you saying that the, the violence stems from a political vision that just has a cloak of sanctification? Because it seems to me a lot of the people, the, the jihadists, they are seeking sanctification. They believe they're serving God. They don't particularly have a political agenda quite as much. They believe there has been disrespect toward their God, uh, and they, it is a purely religious David, motive. ISIS is an attempt to reestablish the caliphate. It's a quite explicitly political organization which is run on a theology which is negated by every single authoritative voice in Islam. Islam does not allow you to murder innocent women and children. Islam does not allow you to commit suicide. Islam does not allow you to be a suicide bomber or a terrorist. All the imams of any authority have clearly declared Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram are in contravention of Islamic law. So what is absolutely clear and lucid is the re restoration of the caliphate uh, after the al-Nakba, if you like, of 1922, when the last imperial bastion of Islamic power, the Ottoman Empire, was dismembered. And uh, that is what they're trying to restore. So what is clear about them is their political agenda. What is thoroughly murky is their religious justification, which is so tenuous as to be tissue thin. Let's talk about uh, Europe. Uh, what happened in France and the atmosphere in Great Britain. Um, the first question, I guess, is if, if uh, Jean-Jacques uh, Jew comes to you, uh, lives in Paris, and says, you know, for the long-term health of my family, I think I should leave France and go to Israel, what would you say? <clears throat> David, I, I uh, had a chance um, in May 2007 to sit not much more distant than I am from you to now to address the three leaders of Europe at the time, Angela Merkel, who was chairing the European Commission, Jose Manuel Barroso, chairman of the EU, and Hans-Gert Pöttering, the president of the European Parliament in Strasbourg. And I said to them, Jews in Europe go back a long way. That experience added many words to the human vocabulary, words like inquisition, expulsion, forced conversion, auto de fe, ghetto, and pogrom. I said all that is the past, and we will live with the past. But today the Jews of Europe are asking, is there a future for the Jews of Europe? And that should concern you, the, Jew, the leaders of Europe. So I spoke about this seven and a half years ago to the European leaders, and you know, I, I have to say that I'm not sure that any of them knows how to deal with this. It's a very, very difficult issue. And therefore, Jews have been leaving France now, although it's only come to public notice, but I know that Jews have been leaving France since around April 2002, because that's when I first heard from French Jews that they felt it was not safe to bring up children in France. And I don't think it's only France. I think it's happening in Norway, in Sweden, in Holland, in Belgium, and that, I mean, that is serious. To think, we've just commemorated the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. To think within living memory of the Holocaust, you have a Europe where it's unsafe to be a Jew in the street. I don't know whether Europe will ever recover from that stain on its character. So I think this is a very, very serious issue. So do you think the problem is uh, some radical extremists within the Muslim community, or do you think there is a pervasive anti-Semitism within 
society. Anti-Semitism is like a virus. We have a protection against virus called the immune system. And after the Holocaust, the greatest attempt in the history of humanity was undertaken to create an immune system so strong that it would be proof against any virus of anti-Semitism. That was a commitment of never again. 50 years of anti-racist legislation, 50 years of interfaith dialogue, 50 years of Holocaust education. The trouble is, although Europe was cured of that virus, certain countries in the Middle East had been infected, some in the 19th century, by the spread of the blood libel into Egypt and Syria. You remember the Damascus blood libel of 1840. And then, of course, brought by the, uh, by the um, Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was working for Hitler in Berlin during the war, he brought the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in Arabic translation into the Middle East. And both of those have infected the Middle East and from there, quite wide swathes of Islam. This is not only the Islamists. And they have brought it back to Europe. So that is what's happened. I mean, it's, 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 it's tragic. If, if, you're, if your family or members of, or your friends or congregants are at a dinner party in, in London in the course of normal life, does this come up? Do they feel it? Is there a dining while Jewish phenomenon? I, I think we've been talking about nothing else for the last 10 years, actually. Uh, Britain remains a profoundly tolerant country. I, I, uh, the first time I spoke about anti-Semitism in, in the EU, I spoke in the uh, EU uh, center in Brussels in 2003, and I said, Jews cannot fight anti-Semitism alone. The victim cannot cure the crime. The hated cannot cure the hate. And I realized that the great failure in the 19th century and even the early 20th century is Jews were left alone. So the one thing we did in Britain almost immediately, that's in 2003, is we went to the prime minister, we went to the politicians, the parliamentarians, we said, you have to lead the fight against anti-Semitism. So Britain became the first country where the fight against anti-Semitism is led by non-Jews. And that is incredibly important. The most important thing that has now happened, and tragic that it should have happened, but it is incredibly important, is that what happened in Charlie Hebdo and Paris has finally persuaded Europeans of something every one of us has known for a very long time. The hate that begins with Jews never ends with Jews. This, you may call this anti-Semitism, but in the end, it's going to affect every single European. If a Jew isn't safe to live in Europe, then no one is safe to live in so, Europe. So is it your perception the Charlie Hebdo thing has, has proven to be a pivot point or will prove to be a pivot point? I hope so. We can't fight this one alone. I mean, Christians have to realize that right now, Christians are being wiped out of the Middle East. I mean, it's a horrendous story, and it's a largely untold story. But they, you know, I mean, I, I mean they're, they're, more than a million Christians have, have been forced to leave Iraq. Afghanistan, there are no Christians. They burnt down the last church in 2010. Uh, 450,000 Christians have fled Syria. Five million Copts in Egypt are living in fear. I mean, you know, so unless Jews and Christians can stand together, then, you know, I, we have to stand together. I mean, there is no alternative. Are you generally optimistic or, or pessimistic about the future of Judaism? Do you have worries about intermarriage, worries about other things that you think will either drain, or, or the, are there trends that uh, just make you think... We're just going great guns Shall here. I give you a Jewish definition of optimism? I thought you might. This is the worst possible world in which there is still hope. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm digesting that. Uh, <laughs> I'm really asking you what, you're, what, what, makes you, what makes you worry and what makes you hopeful. Listen, you know, I, w I was discussing, you know, there's a... Uh, 
uh, professor of English literature. Your father taught English literature. We have one in, in Cambridge called George Steiner. George Steiner was, in a sense, a survivor of the Holocaust. He was a child in, in France when it happened. And we were having a conversation like this 12 years ago. And the subject turned to anti-Semitism. And he turned to me and he said, they will hunt you out like a dog. And I said, George, I am not a guest in this country. I stand and I fight. And that is still my belief. We don't just take this lying down. We stand and we fight. Because Jews were hated because they were different. But difference is what makes us human. It's the fact that each of us is unique means that none of us can be substituted or replaced by any other. It is that that makes life holy. And therefore, a country or a culture that has no room for Jews, has no room for humanity. And therefore, we stay, we stand, and we fight. And we fight with good friends, with Christians, with secular humanists, with Hindus, with Sikhs, and above all, with moderate Muslims who feel as threatened as we do. And we stand, and we fight, and we win. And believe you me, we will win. End of sermon. I'm, I'm going to... But just for, you know, say you're a 20-year-old student on an American college campus, what does that mean? What do you do? Is it the wearing of the kippah? Is it the, the being out there and Jewish? Is it, is it uh, building bridges? What, what do you do? Um, you know, I come back to that word simcha. You know, I mean, you know, if, if you want to, you know, I don't know. I, well, you know, if I were a Jewish student on campus, I would do what we do in our local synagogue, get in the best whiskey, <laughs> do the best chillant, have the most wonderful Shabbos you can possibly imagine, and invite the local leading Christians and Muslims to come and make Shabbos with us. And I would teach them some Shlomo Kalbach songs, and I would say, I am going to share a little of my Jewish joy with you because I think you need cheering up. <laughs> I'll tell you something, David, this surprised me. You know, there was a, a, an Italian film director, uh, I've forgotten his name now, Bernini, who did a, a film called Life is Beautiful, which was a comedy about the Holocaust. And I wrote in a book I wrote, I said, I, you know, I understood his point that humor keeps you sane. But in Auschwitz, humor didn't keep you alive. And this book of mine, which was a cheerful sort of book, it was called Celebrating Life. I wrote it to cheer myself up after my father, Oliver Shalom, died. It became the Holocaust survivor's favorite book. But they came to me and they said, there's one sentence in your book that we don't agree with, where you, where you say you can't agree with Bernini, life is beautiful. And an Auschwitz survivor said to me, when I was in Auschwitz, I realized that unless something kept my spirits going, I would die. I was a young man. I found another young man of my age, and we agreed that every day we would try and find an episode when we were out in our labor camps that would make the other one laugh, and we would come back at the end of the day exhausted, dead, and we would tell each other a funny story, and we both laughed. Humor kept me alive. David, we are the people who didn't even lose our sense of humor in Auschwitz. And frankly, that sense of humor has saved our humanity. And we have to share that with the world because right now our humanity is on the line. So I, I, I wouldn't invite the yeah, lunatics to my kiddish, but anyone who is willing to have me as a friend I would say Alechaim, I would give them chulant, which, you know, it is, either kills or cures one way or another. <laughs> and I would say, you know, let us stop being embarrassed about being Jewish. You know what? We're embarrassed, they're not embarrassed. You know, I remember, the, you remember Jackie Mason? The, you know, he, he was doing his shows and he was saying, you know, they laugh at my jokes. And then they say, too Jewish.
<laughs> We're embarrassed about being too Jewish, you know that? There was this wonderful man, Shlomo Kalbach, who went around campuses teaching people to love, to sing. And after a lifetime, he summed up his experiences, because he went out to non-Jews as well as Jews. And he said, when I come to a group of students, I ask them, what are you? And if a student gets up and says, I'm a Catholic, I know that's a Catholic. And if a student gets up and says, I'm a Protestant, I know that's a Protestant. And if a student gets up and says, I'm just a human being, I know that's a Jew. <laughs> Let us stop being just human beings and be proud to be Jews. And do you know what? The non-Jews will enjoy it because they want us to be what we are. Let me ask you about uh, Shabbat meals. Uh, I have a stereo, uh, stereotype or a generalization that almost every Christian religious service is more spiritual than almost every synagogue service. But every Shabbat meal is more spiritual than every Christian religious service. <laughs> but the, that suggests, I want to talk about the bottom side of that equation. Do Jews have a problem talking about faith and their experience of God? I think they do, and I'm not sure why. We used to be the God-intoxicated people. And somehow, somewhere around the 18th century, Jews lost faith. I think exile had gone on just too long. So you had these extraordinary minds from Spinoza onwards. You know, you know all the statistics. 27% of Nobel Prizes in medicine, 26% in physics, 41% in evil. You know the statistics. But how many of those were believers, you know? And it's a tragedy because somehow Judaism is, to my mind, one of the most mature, adult, extraordinary faiths I've ever come across. We do not, like the Red Queen in Alice, believe in six impossible things before breakfast. We are not an, a people who believe in the irrational. We are the people who invented the concept of argument for the sake of heaven. In fact, I think God only chose the Jewish people because he loves a good argument. <laughs> so you have this tremendous intellectual, muscular, daring religion which puts in its canon of sacred texts books that any other religion in the world would deem heretical, like Ecclesiastes, a subversive book, or Job, you know, of Job hurling questions at the Almighty, and the Almighty finally turning up at the end and asking four chapters of questions on his, of his own and never answering any one of Job's. These are daring, courageous, it's a wonderful faith. And somehow Jews lost it, I don't know, because... At a certain point, anti-Semitism stopped just being something out there and became something in here. And it's a, it's a great loss. But do, do, you, do you come to experience God through reason and, and through argument, or do you through sensation and transcendent sensation? I think Judaism gives you many different ways of coming to God. That's the nature of Judaism. God isn't simple in Judaism. There's creation, there's revelation, there's redemption. So there's that sense of God in the orderliness of the universe that Albert Einstein had to a tremendous degree. I mean, he was a, a mystic guy. He didn't believe in a personal God, but he believed in, well, as he said, God doesn't play dice with the universe, except he does, but then Einstein didn't realize that, and it stopped him understanding quantum physics as early as he might have done. Um, and there is revelation, you know, this idea that we encounter God through the word. Amos Oz and his daughter Fania wrote a book recently about their Jewish identity and they called it Jews and Words. This idea of textual study, we find God through his world, we find God through his word, and then redemption, we find God through history, beginning with Pesach and every other you know, experience of exile and return, slavery and freedom. So I think you encounter God in multiple ways. We have mystical traditions and so on. I, you know, it's, it's, 
Judaism is, is a rich, diverse, living tradition. It's not a simple set of creeds, you know, you tick off the 39 articles or something and that's it. You know, Judaism knows that because we're different, what works for some doesn't work for others. I encounter God through music. And I regret the fact that sadly, you know, when the temple was destroyed, the rabbis decreed, you know, let there be no more music. Let there be no, you know, proper music in shuls. Uh, we lose a great deal, you know. Christians have these incredible choral traditions. They do the most extraordinary things in churches. Like, they sing in the same key, <laughs> with the same words at the same time. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's so un-Jewish, you wouldn't believe it. You know, and, but, you know, I, I, I think the aesthetics of music, I find, I mean, you know, not only Jewish music, incidentally. I mean, personally, I, I can experience the transcendence through Beethoven's Lake Quartets, which are among the most spiritual things ever. So, you know, I, I, I just think God is as broad as, as humanity, you know, every aspect of humanity is a way of encountering God. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul Tillich, who was one of those uh, public theologians in the 1950s, uh, wrote a great, he wrote a great collection of essays or sermons called uh, Shattering the Foundations. And one of them was on grace, on the unmerited love of God, uh, the Christian concept. And, and he, he, he said, when you're at the bottom of your life and you're at a moment of suffering, you just get the sensation that you're accepted and that you don't have to do anything, you don't have to become a Christian, you don't have to read the Bible, you don't have to do anything, you just have to accept the fact that you're accepted and that God loves you more than you deserve. Is that translatable into a Jewish concept? Is that Where do you think he got it from? <laughs> Psalm 27. Ki avi ve'imi azavuni v'ashem yasveni. Even if my mother and father no longer had faith in me, God never loses faith in me. God has more faith in us than we have in ourselves. And I speak from deep personal experience here, David. I mean, it, it isn't always easy being a leader of Jews, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's good news and bad news about the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the greatest speakers in the world. The bad news is they're the worst listeners. <laughs> so Jews have great leaders. The trouble is they, they have no followers, you know. <laughs> As I once said, the Lord is my shepherd, but no Jew was ever a sheep. <laughs> and there were times, you know, when I felt... I used to read Balotacha, uh, Numbers chapter 11. Moses, at a low in his life, to Elaine, my wife. This is what he says. If this is how you're going to treat me, he says to God. If you have any Rachmanus on me whatsoever, kill me now. That's what it says in the Bible. I said to Elena, if we haven't got there, we're okay. <laughs> but there were times when every molecule, every subatomic particle of self-confidence that I had was smashed to smithereens. And it was at that moment when I suddenly realized it does not matter if you believe in yourself. God believes in you. That's what matters. And that gave me the strength to carry on. And that is what Paul Tillich is writing about. And that is common ground between Judaism and Christianity. We may lose faith in ourselves. God never loses faith in us. I regard that as a absolute axiom of Judaism. This is a personal question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, have you had moments of doubt about God's existence? Moments of doubting God? David, I studied philosophy at Oxford and Cambridge. There wasn't a single religious believer in my teachers. I was up against the best minds in Europe, and I never for one second had a moment of crisis of faith in God. But I surely, to goodness, had moments of crisis of faith in humanity. 
and I still have them. I tell you honestly, David, since we've just had Holocaust Memorial Day, the more I study Germany in the 1930s, the less I understand. I've spent a lifetime studying it, and I still don't understand. How did those great minds, Martin Heidegger, Carl Schmitt, Gerhard Kittel, Conrad Lawrence, these guys who were Nazis, they were among the greatest intellectuals, how did they play string quartets in Auschwitz-Birkenau while they were turning one and a quarter million human beings into ash? I have an enormous crisis of faith in humanity. I never had a crisis of faith in God because I never believed that God is a strategic intervener. I never believe God is going to deliver us from all our problems. God is going to give us the courage and the wisdom that we can deliver ourselves. So I never had a crisis of faith, and I hope I never will. Because, you know, I, Judaism is not a faith that involves magical thinking. It's not a naive faith. It's a very, very mature and sophisticated one. So no, I never had a crisis of faith. So let's talk about that material uh, reality of Judaism. I'm Jewish, I don't keep kosher, is that a mistake? <laughs> Depends who the local kosher caterer is, you know. Um, there are a lot of really good restaurants in this neighborhood, by the way. It's terrific. Now, look, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, I, I used to be a slightly finger-wagging, judgmental kind of guy. And then I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to leave that to God because, as Heinrich Heine said, his dying words, Dieu me pardonnerait c'est son métier. Heinrich Heine, who'd converted out of Judaism, he said, God will forgive me. It's what he does for a living. <laughs> So I, for, for decades now, I have ceased to judge anyone. I leave that to God because he's more forgiving than I am. Okay, I'll take a cheeseburger then. That's good. It's bad for your indigestion. It but, really is. but, you know, the, the, there's a spiritual element to that question, but there's also, at, at the moment, a social element and a quality of life element. I mentioned backstage I was driving to Bed-Stuy not long ago, which is a distant Brit. Uh, neighborhood in Brooklyn, and it was a Saturday afternoon, and I drove through, basically I drove through Jewish Brooklyn, uh, and there were Hasidic families with their kids, strollers, just kid after kid for mile after mile. Uh, and uh, is that the future? Uh, is David, I'm going to get a tiny little bit uh, blunt here. You know, I read, I read the book of Job, and I wonder how did he carry on? I look at these families, children of Holocaust survivors. How did they, knowing that in the Shoah, a child could be sentenced to death, not because the child was Jewish, not even because his parents were Jewish, but because his grandparents were Jewish. How does somebody have the faith to have a child after Auschwitz? And when I look at these incredible families and all those young children, I see in every one of those faces one of the million and a half children killed in the Shoah brought back to life again. One day we will look back on what has happened in our lifetime. Historians will look back and say there were two miracles that happened after the Holocaust. One was the State of Israel that restored the Jewish nation. And the other were the Haredim were restored the Jewish people. And while others were drifting away, they had the courage and the self-sacrifice to have children. And I salute that. I am not Haredi. But I do see that their children and their children's children are going to be the people who will sustain our people. And I just hope that they can be a little more generous and forgiving than some of their parents are. Uh, you know, I've asked a couple times this evening, I've asked some questions on uh, different subjects, and you've come back to the Holocaust. As well, a, as know, a, we I mean, it's not a little thing, I understand. But, uh, but, but uh, just describe the role it plays in your mental worldview. Is it a constant presence? Is it a, is it a, a commentary on human nature that haunts you? 
No, actually, I wrote a whole book called Future Tense, arguing against defining Jewish identity as was defined. You know, there was a famous thinker called Emil Fagenheim, a great thinker, who said after the Holocaust, a 614th command has been added to the Torah. Thou shalt not grant Hitler a posthumous victory. And I said that is the most negative definition of Jewish identity given in all of history. It's so bad Jean-Paul Sartre could have written it. <laughs> that is not what we're about. We are about celebrating and sanctifying life, not about remembering death. It's just that. And I, 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 you know, I didn't think about the Holocaust at all. The first time I went to Auschwitz, I did so at the request of the BBC to make a television program on the 50th, 20 years ago exactly. Uh, I was very reluctant to do it, but you know, they persuaded me it was worth doing. And I said, I am going to tell the story of the Holocaust only if I'm allowed to tell it the Jewish way. And they said, what is the Jewish way? And I said, a Jewish story must end with hope. So I did this program about the show I filmed in Auschwitz, but the f last five minutes were scenes of Jerusalem rebuilt and five-year-old children in Jewish schools. So I, I have never been obsessed with the Holocaust. But what bothers me now, and it's, as I've said, it's only in this last 10 or 12 years, is uh, this real question which is not really a question about anti-Semitism in Europe. It's a much deeper question. Does Europe have, does the West have, the moral fiber, the moral courage to stand up against this? Or has Europe become so godless and so morally relativist that it actually has nothing to oppose uh, to those who hate in the name of God? That's what's obsessing me. When you say morally relativist, do you mean that there isn't a, there's so much tolerance, there's not a, a core sense of identity and moral foundation? Look, here is the scene that I've seen so many times on television, I refuse to watch it anymore. A nice Western journalist from the BBC or whatever it is, is sitting next to a member of uh, Hizbal Tahrir or some other radical Muslim group, and he says in a very polite voice, would you not agree um, that decapitating people for blasphemy is somewhat excessive? <laughs> and the Islamist extremist is sitting there with a very straight face saying, well, I can understand how you might see it that way. However, you do understand that different people have different pictures of the moral life, and you understand that we have the right to see things and act as we see them. And the interviewer has no reply. It's mate in one. He has lost before he's even opened his mouth. And the Islamist understands this. And in a world of moral relativism where there is no absolute truth and no absolute right and wrong, the only thing that talks is power. And in that sense, the Islamist is the true child of the 21st century. It's not because he is strong, it's because we are weak and he sees and exploits that weakness. And I would find it very painful if Europe, having come through all that Europe has come through, lacks the moral strength to stand up to people who are shaming and desecrating both the image of humanity and the image of God. What's the answer? Why is that? Explain why we know it's wrong, but explain why it's wrong. Decapitation. Why it's wrong because in Genesis 1, the opening chapter of the Abrahamic faith, common ground to Jews, Christians, and Muslims, God delivers the single most important sentence ever uttered since Homo sapiens first set foot on earth. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That tells us that every single human being, regardless of class, culture, color, or creed, is holy. Life is sacred. God's image is implanted in every single one of us. And that's why murder is wrong, and that's why terror is wrong, and that's why those who claim to be acting in the name of God are actually desecrating the name of God. Full stop.
Uh, we've just got a few more minutes, uh, so I'd ask, like to ask you about the, the Super Bowl. No, I'm kidding. Uh, 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 one of the questions uh, from one of the students was, uh, if you were not a rabbi, what would you be doing with your life? Well, just think, if I weren't a rabbi, I'd have to listen to them, so I'm rather <laughs> pleased. Uh, when, when I was a student, I had, you know, I was, I was undecided between uh, being an economist, I, I went to study economics originally at university, or being an academic, a philosopher. I dreamed one day maybe I could be a fellow of my college in Cambridge or a professor, or a, a lawyer, a barrister. Um, in um, January 1978, I came to um, New York. It was colder than it is this January and visited a man who had been a great influence on my life, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And I said, I have these three ambitions and I'm not sure which to pursue. Which should I pursue? He looked at my list and he said, no to the economist, <laughs> no to the academic, and no to the lawyer. He said, you are going to train rabbis for the next generation. And you are beginning to become yourself a congregational rabbi so that they, your students will come and see you in action and learn how to do things. He sent me back to be a congregational rabbi and a teacher of rabbis and sent me specifically back to the rabbinical training college called Jews College you have in Yeshiva University, something called REITS, which, which is the equivalent in America. Uh, which I did. I went back and became a congregational rabbi. I became the principal of Jews College. I taught rabbis. The odd thing was that having relinquished all three ambitions, I did have the privilege of giving Britain's top two economics lectures. I did become a fellow of my college. I did become a professor, even at NYU. I have this here to prove it. <laughs> And uh, they made me an honorary barrister and an honorary fellow of, of Inner Temple, where I gave a lecture to 600 barristers on restorative justice, including the Lord Chief Justice and the head of Chambers, Princess Anne. So in the end, I think, you know, I'm just grateful that I had this chance of speaking to the rabbi. And he, you know, there are, there are wise people who see where you fit into the big jigsaw puzzle. And in the end, I fulfilled all my ambitions precisely when I was walking in the opposite direction. Well, what did you learn being a congregational rabbi? Did you learn things about human nature you didn't know before? Yeah. Number one, <laughs> I learned uh, that the art of conversation is not dead. <laughs> it is alive and well, and it happens especially during the reading of the Torah. <laughs> I also learned a certain robustness, you know, because uh, once in a while I would give a sermon where I would, you know, speak my mind. And I was a rabbi of quite a, a congregation in, in Marble Arch, which had some fairly uh, alpha males. <laughs> and after my sermon, one or two of them would come over to me and deliver this wonderful compliment. Next time, speak about something you know something about. <laughs> But I will tell you this, I will tell you this, and it's an extraordinary thing. Elaine and I we had this position as Chief Rabbi and Chief Robertson for 22 years. We had as dinner guests round our table at our home four prime ministers. I don't know how many uh, government ministers. They all became friends, lots of royals from Britain and from, even from the Middle East, from Morocco, from Jordan. And the odd thing is that every single time we had this, this guest of honor, they were outgunned intellectually by all the Jewish people around the table. And I suddenly realized that we may be a tiny people. The late Milton Himmelfarb said, just think about it, the total number of Jews in the world is smaller than the statistical error in the Chinese census. <laughs> 
We may be a tiny people, but we have an embaradery chasse of talent that is simply stunning. And we saw this every single time we gave a dinner. Ordinary people from our community. Somehow Judaism has this gift of raising the game for each of us. Of letting us achieve more than we ever believed we could. Uh, now I'm no longer chief rabbi. I can occasionally sneak off to the cinema to see a film. And last Motzei Shabbat, I saw a film. Well, it's an American film, so you must have seen it. Whiplash. Have you seen this film? Now, this is an incredible film. It's a totally unbelievable film. But it's about a real so-and-so who coaxes talent out of a young drummer and gets him to perform beyond his best by being the most obnoxious, objectionable human being you can imagine. Somehow Judaism coaxes that same 110% out of us without being obnoxious. Um, the reason that we all hyper and overachieve is called having a Jewish mother. <laughs> I'd rather have a Jewish mother than the guy in whiplash. So one way or another, between our mother's faith in us and God's faith in us, we may be a tiny people, but we do extraordinary things. Backstage, the rabbi was uh, talking about the movie Lego, which I will, I will not go there. I love it. Everything is awesome. <laughs> this, is such, you, you know, this is such an un-British thing, let alone an un-Jewish thing. In Britain, everything's terrible. You know, if everything's terrible, then everything's okay. <laughs> Whereas in America, everything is awesome. Yeah, I commend that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, my joke is that, uh, somewhat unfair joke, is that being a, a conservative columnist on the New York Times op-ed page is like being the chief rabbi at Mecca. Uh, <laughs> sometimes a little lonely, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's been a great pleasure to be with the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. That was great.